good to be with you, brothers and sisters. So glad that we're able to gather this morning. Uh, so thankful that we're able to gather, that this, this, this room, this space is even available right across the street. Praise God for that. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we're especially thankful for you. You're crazy for coming. Uh, we're, we're, I'm joking. That wasn't funny, apparently. Uh, we're, no, we're just glad you're here. Uh, we're glad you're here with us. That it's, it's, a, it's, it's different. It's strange. Your, your, your map told you to go to Boys and Girls Club, but we have flags over here. So just thank you for dealing with all of this, and we're grateful. At the end of the day, uh, as long as we're capable of meeting, this church is going to meet. You know, and, and if, the, if the government uh, tells us to stop, then we will surely obey our governmental authorities and, and not meet until we're able to uh, again. But I'm just, we're grateful. We're going we're gonna to spend time in the Word. I was sharing earlier uh, with a group up here that one of my favorite people on the planet uh, uh, was Martin Lloyd-Jones of the 20th century. And he was pastor of a, of a church in London, downtown London, in the, uh, well, for 30 years, from the late 30s all the way into 1979. And he, uh, he was the pastor during World War II. And in, uh, during that time, you, you may remember the, the London uh, air raids, the Germans coming over the English Channel and bombing uh, London. And, well, that happened to be taking place on a Sunday morning one day. And he was preaching the word. He was preaching uh, from the Bible to his church. It was a smaller gathering. A lot of people were all over the place. But they were gathering. And and the bombs hit that Sunday morning, about two blocks over, and just completely destroyed an entire block. And what Martin Lloyd-Jones did, and it's, I'm so grateful for him, he, he paused as the bombs went off. You know, just imagine the sound of bombs going off in the trees right over there. Bomb, 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 bomb. He pauses, and then he keeps on preaching. That's, that's kind of what we're going to be doing here, too, is we're not going to let anything deter us from the Word of God. Our, that's what we do. That's who we are. We are people who are gathered around the word of God, gathered around the ordinances so that we might declare the gospel of Jesus Christ to one another and to the world. So that's what we're going to do. And this, the, t- today we're finishing, this is the last sermon in our sermon series, uh, Imago Day. And uh, I wanna, we're, we're going to talk about uh, vocation. What does it look like? What does it mean to, to do as an image bearer? But before that, let's, let's, let's go to God in prayer. I need help. We need help. Uh, for the Spirit of God to move among us as, as we hear His Word. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we have come before you this morning to declare your name to you. Uh, we have come together to sing your praises to one another. That we ought to be heralds of truth both as we gather and as we scatter. And so that's what we do this morning. And God, I, I plead with you, pour out your spirit. Pour out your spirit upon us. That you would be with us, that you'd be near us, that you'd meet with us, that you'd satisfy us. Help us listen this morning. God, help us hear. I pray that you would comfort us and convict us. That you would remind us of the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ, which calls us sons and daughters. What other privilege is there? What other identity is there to grab? That we are the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And that we have received the promise of your Holy Spirit. 
So God, I pray that you would fill us now. Fill us up with your word. Fill us up with your spirit. And God, as you feed us, that you would also give us the simultaneous blessing of hunger. That we'd want more and more and more and more of you. Give us more of yourself, God. To know Christ and then to know him all the more. May we be a church that is filled with the glory of God. Would you satiate, would you satisfy that, that, Lord, that we would be a people who cannot get enough of your steadfast love. That you would satisfy us every single morning in your steadfast love. That we'd wake up eager, needing bread. And then especially as we come together to worship, that you would feed us. That you give us your bread this morning. And thank you for your word. It is so precious to us. God, remind us again and again what it means to be a, a church that is surrounding the word, that comes around the word to hear your voice. God, speak to us today. Speak now, we pray. And God, I, I ask for you to do a spiritual inventory, which hearts in the room are not ready to hear your word. God, for those who might be defiant to you right now, that you would soften, that you'd be gracious, that they might hear. For those who are hungry, that you would meet that hunger now and give them all the more. God, lift up those in our body who are not here today. Lift up those who are elderly who are not gathering with us for the next month. That you would be kind and gracious and compassionate. Have mercy on them. Protect them. God, keep them safe. God, please prevent illness in our body. For those who have immune, autoimmune disorders or, or weak immune systems, God, that you, would, uh, that you would give them wisdom, you'd give them clarity, and that you'd protect them. God, we're here before you. We acknowledge you. Please visit us now. Manifest yourself. Be pleased to come amongst your people as your word is spoken. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. You can turn to Genesis chapter 1 if you have a Bible. You were made in the image of God. That, is a, that applies to every single human in the room. You are made in the image of God. But what God? A God with whom none can compare. A God of mercy and grace. A God slow to anger. A God who keeps his word and keeps his love. A God who violently hates sin and yet sent his only son to a violent cross on our behalf. This God stands alone. He is set apart. He is a God of holiness. And so what happens when this almighty God is displayed? What happens when he manifests himself, manifests his character? Well, we have a word for that. Glory. 
ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the, the glory to his name. All in his temple cry out glory. See, when God is revealed, glory spills out. His glory is the manifestation of himself. His presence, it's his splendor, it's his brilliance. He is the father of lights, James tells us. He has no shadow. This immeasurable God cannot be contained. Therefore, the intentional, the ordained byproduct of an eternal God of unmatchable glory is a vast outpouring of that glory. God's glory moves. The great cause, listen to me on this, the great cause of the created universe is the overflow of the glory of the Lord. Our God is a filling God. God fills all with his glory, so much that it spills over. So who can exhaust the glory of God? Who can reach the end of God? Who can even find one inch that is outside the brilliant light of God? This is why Paul calls Jesus, the Son of God, unsearchably rich. So when we ask, why do I exist? Why do we exist? We must stop looking at science textbooks and going to Richard Dawkins' seminars. The answer can't be found in science. Science kneels to God. We're not talking about evolution. We're not talking about some random ignition of life. No, we're talking about God filling the universe with his glory. To be made in the image of God is to be an expression of his glory. To be an image bearer is to be a glory bearer. So what makes you and me what we are, the, you know, the humanness, the, es the essence of humanness rises and falls on God making us in his image. That makes us radically unique as well. No other animal bears God Im God's image, no fish. No mammal, no insect, no bird, no tree, no plant, no mountain, but even bigger, no planet, no asteroid, no star, no sun, no black hole, no nebula, no solar system, not even the galaxies that we find some 13 billion light years away are made in the image of God. Not even angels are made in the image of God. We uniquely exist to bear the image of our glorious God. Now this morning, we finish our series in Imago Dei, the, the Image of God series, and I want us to consider this question. What is it, what does an image bearer, all of that we just described, what does an image bearer do? What does an image bearer do? We've talked quite a bit about identity, what it means to be an image bearer, what it means to be a human, what it means to be a man, to be a woman, to be a spouse, to be single. What are we to do, though? Today I want to consider vocation, because identity and vocation are linked. They're linked together. In the scriptures, we see that when God defines, he also tasks that when God calls us out of the ground, he also calls us to, com uh, he commissions us to, to work the ground. When God creates, he also employs. So identity authorizes vocation. And so what is that vocation? What are image bearers to do? As image bearers, what's our job? That's what I'm asking. What's our job as people made in the image of God? Well, that answer comes first, starts in Genesis chapter 1. So chapter 1, verses 
26 through 28. I want you to notice the relationship between identity and vocation, who we are and what we're to do in these three verses. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So catch the rhythm here. That the moment after he defines humanity as those who will bear his image, he commissions them. This is who you are, therefore do this. And what are they to do? Verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now what is that? What's that about? Is God talking, when he says be fruitful and multiply, is he talking about kids? Is he talking about having children? Well, sure. At least it starts there. But the principle is actually much bigger than that. We cannot forget who we are. We are image bearers. God is not just saying, he is certainly saying, but he's not only saying, hey, have a lot of babies. He's saying, spread my glory. That's what he's saying. Right now, God's speaking, you're in my, you know, imagine being there. You're in my garden, but I want this entire planet to be full of my, you know, remember, the garden had specific boundaries. Genesis chapter 2 tells us that. It wasn't the whole earth. It was a specific place. And God is saying, fill the earth with this garden. So Genesis 1.28 has less to do with physical reproduction than it does with glory reproduction. This is the Lord's prayer before it was the Lord's prayer. What does Jesus tell, how, tell, instruct us how to pray? Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's exactly Adam's commission, to spread the kingdom, the rule, the reign, the word, the will, the presence, the worship, the glory of God into all the earth. And so you see this in your notes. When we were thinking about the question, what are we to do? Well, before the fall, we were to fill the world with the presence and the worship of God. We were to fill the world, fill the earth with the presence and the worship of God. Our vocation, our job was to multiply the glory of God. But the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. We were deceived. Our great enemy, Satan himself, deceived us into thinking that images of glory are the same as glory itself. And so the mirror that was intended to point up began to point out and to point in. Eyes that were created, the very purpose of human eyes is so that we can fix our eyes on the Lord. Well, those eyes began to be fixed on the image of the Lord. The painting became more important than the landscape itself. The coin became more important than the king that it represented. Both identity and vocation were lost. And so look with me at Genesis chapter 6. This is what happens as a result of the fall. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And then we see in verse 11, now pay attention to the language here. 
Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Did you catch that? That's a clue for us. The earth was filled with violence. That's vocation language. Remember that we are to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord, with the presence of the Lord. But now humanity has distorted and altogether lost that vocation. The earth is not filled with God's glory, but it's filled with our wickedness, our violence. Or think about Babel, Genesis chapter 11. What did they say? Come, come, let us make a name for ourselves. And then God dispersed them into all the world. See, Babel, the, the story of Babel is the great reversal of the Genesis commission. Instead of filling the earth with God's glory, the earth has been dispersed by nations who hate him. So you see that before the fall, we we're built for the, the presence and the worship of God. Well, now we see this in your notes. After the fall, we have filled the world with the violence and idolatry of mankind. The, the violence and idolatry of mankind. That's the state of things as we, when we get to Genesis chapter 11. So what does God do? Here's the earth dispersed with the wickedness, the idolatry, the violence of mankind. What does he do? Well, Genesis chapter 12 now. Now the Lord said to one man, Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And then listen, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now Genesis 17 says this, Behold, speaking to Abraham still, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So when we leave Genesis 11, when we leave Babel, we have the exact opposite of the Genesis commission in Genesis 1 and 2. We have nations that are spread all over the earth, full of violence, full of wickedness. They're nations that hate God. They hate one another. But here then in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 17, we have this promise that comes forth. That God promises that all the nations of the earth will be blessed by him. So through Abraham, the Genesis Commission restarts, reboots, reactivates. It's alive again. Through Abraham, the earth will be filled with the glory and the presence of God. Through Abraham, all of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed. But I want you to notice the change. We have this in a little chart so you can see it. Notice the, 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 the difference between Genesis 1 and Genesis 17. In Genesis chapter 1, you, it was a command. Hey, Adam and Eve, be fruitful. Hey, Adam and Eve, multiply. But now in Genesis 17 with Abraham is, I will make you fruitful. I will make you multiply. So don't miss this. God supplies the obedience. In Genesis 1, it's do this. This is your job. And in 17, it's I'm going to do this. I'm going to do for you your job. You can't do it, so I'm going to do it for you. So God becomes the agent of his own glory. He does what we as image bearers failed to do. Now listen to this. Have you ever wondered? Have you ever wondered why all, all of the prominent women in Genesis were barren? Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and even Leah at first was barren. Why? God told Adam and Noah in Genesis 1 and Genesis 9, hey, be fruitful and multiply. 
that's only possible at this time if you have children. You have to bear children. So then he chooses, chooses Sarah. And he promises Abraham to his face that Abraham could hear the Lord say, I'm going to give you a son, and from your son will come a great nation. Beg your pardon, Lord, but my wife is barren, number one, and her womb is a century years old. How in the world are you going to carry on this promise? Well, God is showing us, this is a foreshadow, it's just a taste of what Jesus would say to his disciples. What is impossible with man is possible with God. What is impossible with man is only possible with God. He will choose a barren woman to carry his glory forward so that people like you and me will join King David in Psalm 118 and say, this is not our doing, this is the Lord's doing. And what's his response to that? It is marvelous in our eyes. We see what God does. We see the things that he does, but we cannot do. We say, glory be to God, glory in the highest to him who is able to do what we cannot do for ourselves. Soon, Abraham's family does indeed become a nation. Moses tells us this in Exodus chapter 1, that the people of Israel, I mean, come on, this is so obvious at this point, they were fruitful and they increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land, which is the Hebrew word for earth, the earth was filled with them. So this man, Abraham, has now become a nation, Israel, and they were beginning to fill the earth. God was carrying forward his plan. But at the same time, he was very clear with them. His promise, his grace, it came with his presence. Yes, but it came with a response, obedience. Leviticus 26 If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, I will turn to you and make you fruitful. I will multiply you. I will confirm my covenant with you. I will make make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you. That is Eden language, brothers and sisters. I will walk among you. I will be near you again if you obey If you will embrace my grace and live by my word, I will return Eden to you. In fact, that's what the point of the promised land was. The intention of the promised land was to be the restoration of Eden. That's why it's called a land flowing with milk and honey. These these excessive terms of what it's going to be like in the promised land. It's going to mirror, it's going to feel like Eden if you walk with me, if you obey me. But of course there was a major problem. The hearts of Israel were no different than the hearts of Babel. God's chosen nation to reflect his glory, God's chosen people to fill the nations with his light, that nation failed. They became like the nations themselves. They filled the earth with sin, with wickedness, with idolatry. In fact, when we read the story of the Old Testament, the history, that's the whole thing, is it not? The Old Testament is full of the failure of God's people, and so he punishes them. He takes his presence from them, and they are exiled. Just like Babel, the Israelites now, through exile, are dispersed into all the world. Israel was supposed to look nothing like Babel, but they had become the same thing. But praise God for the Old Testament prophets. Because even as Israel, even right as Israel was rebelling against God, even as they were failing in their job, God promised to be faithful to his own word, 
So look, look, at me, uh, look with me at Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 is this wonderful prophecy that pops out, that, that pops forth. There shall come forth a shoot. Okay, so that's, that's green language, that's plant language. Let's pay attention, right? There, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, time out. Who's Jesse? Interact with me. Who's Jesse? David's dad, the father of not just any David, King David. Isaiah is talking about someone that God has already talked about. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised David, I will give you a son. And when that son mounts up on his throne, he's never going to get off. His kingdom will last forever and ever and ever. He promised an eternal kingdom that one of David's sons would rule forever. And this is what we call the Messiah. That's who Isaiah has in mind. But wait a second. He calls him the stump of Jesse. I mean, that's not the best word I could ever imagine to describe a Messiah. Stump? What's a stump? It's something that's been, what, what is it? It's a tree that's been cut off. Now, why would you cut off a tree? Why would you cut down a tree? Because it's not bearing fruit. It's unfruitful. The tree's not doing its job. And so... God himself has the axe in his hand, and he lays it down. He lays down the tree of Israel. Not only the tree of Israel, the tree of the kings, the leaders of Israel. David's sons and sons and sons, they failed. So God cut it down. But right when you think that tree is dead, it hasn't produced in generation after generation after generation of harvests, a small little shoot pops forth. Because the roots never die. The roots, what are those roots? They're the roots of God's promises. They're the roots of God's word. God told David, one day there will be a king. And nothing can stop my word from taking place. So the faithfulness of God and the very roots of the stump of Jesse bring forth a baby boy. Born in a Bethlehem feeding trough 800 years later. And he was going to change everything. Isaiah continues. He says this, in a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. There it is. Be fruitful, multiply, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. That's the language we needed. That's Genesis chapter 1 language. That's commission language. Now, the, the very end here on, in verse 9, he's talking about the people that come from this root, this, this Jesus, this Messiah. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2.14 says it in the fullest way. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. I mean, we've got to get excited, brothers and sisters. That is where we need, that's what we needed to hear. When you're reading the first few pages of the Old Testament, saying, God, where are you? What are you going to do? How are you going to help? And I say, Isaiah is saying that this Messiah, Jesus, he's going to be the one. Jesus is going to be the one. Israel failed. Adam failed. But Jesus will not fail. He will produce a fruit. He will produce a harvest. He will be the one who fills the earth, the entire earth, with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Why? Why Jesus? Why is Jesus able to do what Israel never could? Why is Jesus able to do what Adam could never do? Well, the reason that Jesus is able, capable, to fill the earth with the glory of God starts with the fact 
that he is the glory of God. He's not like you. Jesus isn't like me. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. Jesus is the image maker who became an image bearer. He is the ultimate image bearer. He is the image of the invisible God. He is not like every other man. He is both fully God and fully man. And he came to the earth to dwell, to bring the glory of God to us. He came to the earth to restore Eden. He came to the earth to bring us to God. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. If I could be liberal in my translation, Christ died the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us back to Eden. To bring us back where God walked, where God is, where the presence of God is. Jesus died on the cross and rose again three days later to take us back to Eden because that's where God is. God is in Eden. He died to restore ruined images like you and me. For those who repent of their sins. Those who say, yes, guilty as charged. Yes, ruined in my ways. Ruined in my talk. Ruined in my thoughts. Nothing it makes me righteous before this God. If we can say that and you can really believe it and trust it, that Jesus comes and makes things right makes all things well, that he exchanges righteousness for unrighteousness. He exchanges dirt for purity. If you believe that and repent of your sins, then there is a restoration given to you. There is a new heart that is given to you. And so out of the heart, a new heart springs up fruit, difference. Things change and the glory of God begins to emanate out of image bearers again. And that's how it all connects. That's how this whole series connects we can say that Jesus was fruitful Jesus was the one who bore fruit he multiplied what do I mean I belong to him I am the fruit of Christ see we all know Jesus was intentionally needingly single he didn't have children so how did Jesus multiply how can we say that Jesus fulfilled the commission that God gave to Adam how is he going to fill the earth with God's glory? By making disciples. By making disciples. According to Jesus, the fulfillment of Genesis 1:28 to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, well, that is to make disciples of all nations. You see, the Genesis commission is just a shadow. It progresses. It reveals. It is fulfilled. The commission of Genesis 1 and 2 becomes the great commission of Matthew chapter 28. Jesus says this in Matthew 28. You're familiar with it, but listen to it again. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see the connection now? You see the connection between Genesis 1 and, and Matthew 28? Here's, here's kind of a comparison that's hard to see. Uh, but the more that we compare them, the more similar they actually become with the authority that we've been given in Christ. Just like Adam was given authority by God in the garden, we are going to make disciples by baptizing them, by teaching them, while being strengthened, giving the power and the promise of his presence. See, Adam's identity, who Adam was by definition, was that he was an image of God. And his vocation, his job, was to be fruitful and to multiply. 
Now the same is true of us after Christ, since Christ has come. What does Paul tell the Romans in chapter 8? That we are being conformed to the image of Christ. Is Paul just making up these terms? No, his head is in Genesis chapter 1. He sees that we, our identity is to be those who have been formed to the image of Christ. And so our vocation, our job, the command that we have is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And so you see this in your notes. What are we to do? If I could lock it down to one sentence, if our identity is to be an image of Christ, then our job description is to be or to make disciples of Christ. If our identity is to be an image of Christ, then our job description is to make disciples of Christ. Our job is to make disciples of all nations so that the, this is Paul's language, so that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ will be spread throughout all the world. So are we? We finish this series by asking this question. Are we doing what image bearers do? Church, are we making disciples? Are we doing our job? If our master Jesus were to come, and he was going to give us, like a lot of us have, an annual review of our job that year. Based on our job description, how would that meeting go? Would he say, I've been wrestling with this, would he say, well done, good and faithful servant? Or would he say, get away from me, you worker of iniquity? Jesus says in John 15 that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into a fire, and burned. We're either bearing fruit, we're either making disciples... Because identity authorizes vocation. Those who are made in the image of Christ will make disciples of Christ. The two cannot be detached. We're either making disciples or we're getting thrown away. So are we making disciples? Church, are we making disciples? Here's a rubric. I don't, maybe you're like, I don't know, are we? Here's a rubric, a, a simple way to analyze that question. Number one. We ought to be filling our church with the glory of God. Okay, filling our church with the glory of God. One essential part of making disciples is maturing disciples. Maturing the saints that are around us. This is why church membership is so valuable to us at Redeemer. When we sign that covenant together, we are making a promise to be mutual agents of sanctification with one another. One way to know that if God is using you to make into mature disciples in our church is to answer this question. Do people love Christ more because of my presence in their lives? Are the friendships that I have in this church leading to holiness, my holiness? See, that has to be like the, the, like the first layer of our friendships together. It can't be any of these other periphery things. The purpose of my friendship, my gospel friendship with you and yours with me, is for us to sanctify one another. You should be helping me love Jesus more, and I should be helping you love Jesus more. That is the definition of our relationship together. So if we can't talk about Christ, we are failing the Great Commission. 
inside the church. I'm not talking about out there. I'm talking about inside the church. Am I contributing to the body? Can people here look at me and say that I am stirring them up to love and good works? Am I an active member here? See, it doesn't matter. I like the list. I think the list is very important. But at the end of the day, the list of members doesn't matter. It matters if you're walking toward Christ-likeness together. Are we walking toward Christ-likeness together? Are we a holy, purified church, brothers and sisters? Are we cleansing one another? Is God using us as sanctifying tools in one another's lives? Are we actually colluding in sin together? Are we hanging out and sinning together? That is so much like the city in the valley. We must not do that. We must bear the image of Christ within Redeemer 38. Okay, number two, we must fill our town with the glory of God. So first, filling our church with the glory of God. Second, filling our town with the glory of God. This is where evangelism takes place. We cannot say that we are making disciples if we are not declaring the good news to unbelievers. And we can say that we are making disciples if we are declaring the good news to unbelievers. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Look at, the way that, look at the way that Luke decides to write. These aren't quotes. This is Luke, the author, the editor of a narrative talking like this. He's intentional. He's got Genesis 1 right here. The word of God continued to increase. Intentional. All the numbers of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Acts 9, 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. That's number one, filling the church with the glory of God. And then walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Spirit, it multiplied. That's number two, Acts 16. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith. That's number one. And, and they increased in numbers daily. That's number two. Depth of, a, of the saints is essential. Yes, my job actually, David's job, the elder's job, is to mature the body. That we get to the, the, the throne of God and say, did you mature this flock? That's our job description. That's in fact every member's job description. But width of the saints matters too. Let's not be a church who loves one more than the other. We have to fight for the depth of the saints and the width of the saints. If a local church wants to say that it's a discipling church, evangelism must be alive. Evangelism must be pumping, in fact. This is so critical for us individually. See, I can, I can think of specific people in our church right now, ping, 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 that are sharing the gospel with unbelievers. They're, they're declaring, they're heralding the good news to unbelievers. And we need all of them. And we need all of us to be doing that same thing. Because if we want to be a church that is truly making disciples, then we will be filling our town with the glory of God. And lastly, number three, filling the nations with the glory of God. Filling the nations with the glory of God. Making disciples does not stop with my neighborhood, doesn't even stop with our town. Jesus assumes in the Great Commission that his people will find every people group. He expects that we will declare the gospel, make disciples, and plant churches in every corner of the earth. The glory of God filling the earth as the waters cover the sea, that phrase is meant to be literal. It's meant to be a literal statement. Jesus actually wants the entire planet to be reached with the gospel. And he has equipped his church with the necessary people and the necessary gifts to accomplish this mission. So will God 
This is the question we need to ask as we finish Imago Day. Will God raise us up in these three, er- three areas? Will he raise up members today who will intentionally sanctify one another? Will he raise up a church that heralds the gospel in the vanity fair called South Walton? Will he raise up long-term, lifelong missionaries out of this church? When will we say goodbye to South Walton? Who will walk away from this life that we have here? And who's going to go to the unreached? Who is it? And, which, and now let's go to you. Which one of these areas do you need to grow? Filling the church, filling this town, or filling the nations? Which one of these areas needs growth in your life? As those who bear the image of Christ, we have to do our job. We have to do our job. And this is the most creative theme of a sermon I've ever had. Make disciples. Make disciples. Let's be a church known for making disciples in this room, or that one, our town and the nations. Let's be a church like that. But I want to finish with this. I want to finish with one caveat. One thing that derails this whole thing. To be filled, or excuse me, to fill, requires being filled. Right? In order to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, we have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, I read all those passages in Acts a second ago. We're about to spend a year and a half or so in them, and I can't wait. But the entire book is saying this phrase, and he was filled with the Spirit, and she was filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not talking about Pentecost only. I'm talking about like eight, ten times in the, Acts, in the book of Acts alone. What was that? What happened? What was unique about that? We're talking about Christians who already received the indwelling of the Spirit. Something happened to them. They were filled with the Spirit. I'm comfortable talking about this one. We must be filled with the Holy Spirit, church. And you want to know how? You want to know the formula? Number one, God is sovereign, and the wind blows where it wants to, when it wants to, and to whom it wants to. And number two, faces on the ground. Faces on the ground. When people pray, the Spirit comes. That's the way he has sovereignly orchestrated it. That he has written into the fabric of his sovereignty our prayers on our knees, desperate for this church, desperate for this town, and desperate for the world. You see, the rubric is also the prayer plan. When we fill, God, would you fill our church with your spirit? Would you fill our church with your glory? God, would you fill South Walton with your glory? Would you fill us with your spirit so that we can go out in power? And would you fill us with your spirit so that we can reach those who have never heard the gospel and equip those who have? Have we prayed like that this week? Have we been praying like that? See, i got to go walk. I can't focus sitting down, all the noises, headphones, chat holly, and I pray. God, please come. Please visit us. Please walk among us. Please be Leviticus 26 because I don't want to waste time with my brothers talking about football anymore. I do it. I'll probably do it tomorrow. But I'm tired of not being filled with him. 
to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord, to really make disciples, to be a church that matters in this town and in the globe, we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's be a people of prayer. Let's be a, a people of prayer who sacrifice cash, time, travel, everything else that you can imagine. Sacrifice all those things so that we can say with certainty, yes, we are a people who pray. We are a people who beg God to move. Please move, God. And he is pleased to do so. So let's make disciples so that the earth will be filled with the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior and King. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's one message. That to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it is fulfilled and is broadened, is expanded by go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. Thank you that we don't have to guess what your will is for us. That your will for our church is very clear. To sanctify one another, to declare the good news, to go to the nations and then to beg you to show up in the midst of it all. God, make us a contending church. May we not be a consuming church, but a contending church. A church that is on our knees asking you to move. Please do it, Lord. Orient our hearts, orient our minds, orient our habits, our will to your glory at the four corners of the earth. I pray for every home, every unit in this room for a moment, whether it's a unit of one or a unit of ten. That your glory would fill the four corners of these homes. Not because of some special oil that's put on the door. I don't, I'm not, I don't care about that. I care about our people praying. God, make, these, make this a conglomeration of homes that pray. Because that's our job. You've commissioned us. You sent us out. So, Lord, would you come? And I thank you, I thank you that, you've, that you've come already. I thank you for Jesus, that, that branch, that shoot that came forth from a stump, what looked like a dead tree. God, thank you for your faithfulness, as we sang already. Great is your faithfulness. That every morning we wake up with the mercies of God, hot as ever, fresh as ever. Your mercies vibrant and new. Make us a people who wait upon you. Make us a people who are patient for the presence of God. Make us a people who are absorbed with the glory of God, who understand you. God, give us sights of you again. To whom can we compare? The Holy One of Israel? There is none like him. And for those who wait upon the Lord, their strength shall be renewed like the eagles. So with the grand vision of who you are in all of your glory and a commitment to be in your presence through prayer and gathered worship and the word, manifest yourself among us, God.
Jesus Christ's name. Amen.